Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, today, we're going to talk about identity and sexuality. And these are obviously big hot-button topics within the culture, identity and sexuality, and they've caused lots of rifts uh, within the church. And so that's what we're going to tackle today. So this morning, I'm going to start with, with really hitting the identity piece. Because I think that's often where we go wrong. And, I, you know, we've talked about this before, but if you have the wrong premise to begin with, or if you're starting on the wrong foundation, it's, it's so easy then to get derailed. And that's why even things like, you know, the grand story, why that was so important. Because if we don't understand how all of Scripture works together and how God is working and holding that whole thing together, uh, often we get sidetracked on one topic, on one question, and we forget that there's an entire story and an entire Bible that, that, uh, that explains the whole thing together. So identity is no different. And uh, you see a lot in the culture talking about how our sexuality actually uh, helps us, you know, helps tell us who we are. And so that's what we're going to start with, is identity. Who I am. So who am I is a question that everyone asks. So when we think about the question, who am I, if you're thinking, well, I don't, you know, that's not a question I consciously ask myself. That might be true. You don't consciously ask yourself this question. but, But it is also true, though, that everybody asks this question. In fact, it's wired into our very DNA. It's It's in our biology. It's how we're made. So, you know, even when you look at normal human development from, you know, a baby to a toddler to a youth to, to a teenager to finally an adult, uh, we're all trying to, que- to answer the question of who am I? Our brains are. Even subconsciously, we're always trying to figure out who am I and how do I fit in the world around me? And so how we answer this question is critical. So for a baby, babies look, you know, the, the first connection that they have is with mom. Right? And they look into mom's eyes and how mom responds to the baby. Babies learn if they're valuable or, or their worth. They learn, they, they, learn, they learn about their worth and value. All of the things that start building the you know, foundation for who I am. What kind of person am I? Am I valuable? And these, these are really the questions that, that are all connected to who am I? You know, and then as we get older, uh, dad obviously gets included in that. And, you know, right up until the ages of around 0 to 12, 11, 12-ish, right in there. Um, often, who am I? Our identity is, is found by seeing our reflection in the face of our family. Right? So it's mostly our family. And then right around 11, 12, that's hitting that middle school age, is where things begin to shift. And, and, you know, we've already had a bunch of years, a decade or so of finding out who am I through my family. Now we begin to look into the peer groups. And, and we look into the peer groups and we start seeing who am I and how do I fit in the world as I'm reflected in the eyes of my peers. And this is obvi- uh, you know, often a, a time of uh, questioning of, you know, we see some kids going off in rebellion, like myself, I did that. Um, but you, you see all sorts, right? They begin to question. Mom and dad have always said this, but now we're trying to determine for ourselves, who am I and how do I fit in this world around me? And obviously then as, you know, as adults, then we begin to really start firming that up, right? We, we begin to make decisions on who am I going to be and what that means going forward. And so, like I said, the, the, the question is universal. And how we answer it is, is critical. It's, it's critical. And what we need to realize as believers, uh, we have been given a new identity. We have been given an identity in Christ. Now, that phrase is, is very familiar within Christian circles, but, but often we fail to, to see how, how it relates or even how, it, how we should define it. But our identity is now found in Christ. Now, if you're in the world, though, 
you can see why things like, you know, the world will tell you it's up to you to determine who you are. You decide based on how you feel, what you want, what you do for a job. Uh, there might be any number of things that help you determine the answer to that question. Uh, but as believers, it's not up to us to determine who we are because we actually find our identity in Christ. So we actually have to go back here and we find out that it's not something we, you know, we're not making up who we are, the answer to that question. We actually go here and we see from our Creator who he created us to be. And from there, we begin to see how our lives are reflected in him, and we begin to align our lives up with what the Word of God says. So the, the very first thing, we're going to start with the foundation of where we have to go, because we could obviously spend lots of time on identity in Christ. I mean, I have a, a document on my computer I was looking at earlier that has, you know, I don't know, 30 or 40 statements on there of who we are in Christ but there's one starting point, a foundational starting point that really puts all of the rest. It frames the rest and the rest of our life and it kind of gives us a guiding principle for going forward. And that is found here. Creation. So our identity right from the beginning, if you split you know, the Bible into four, the grand story into those four categories, you might have heard them before, but creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Right? That's kind of the, the, the quick Coles Notes uh, framework for the Bible. And right in creation, the beginning of the Bible, we find out who we are. And what we find is this. So I'll put the verse up there. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish and sea and over the birds of heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So our identity, who we are, who we were created to be, is image bearers. So that is the foundation upon which everything else is built. We were created to be image bearers. And if you don't understand that, see, see often what happens is, you know, even in Christian circles, we talk about identity and sexuality and we jump to what is sin and what isn't sin. And then people right away feel very offended or they get really uptight because you're, you're talking about parts of me and you're saying now oh, that parts of me are wrong. But what makes something right or wrong in the first place? I mean, what is sin? And to even understand what sin is, you have to actually go back to creation. Because you have to understand the purpose for which we were created. You have to understand who we are. And then you can kind of move forward and from there begin to put everything in a framework to see why it matters what we do. Why it matters how we identify ourselves. Why it matters, you know, the choices we make in life and, and what determines right and wrong. So, image bearers. Male and female, different but expressing different aspects of the same God. This is critical. The next part though. So this is... This is the foundation, and that's all I'm going to say about who we are because this is the most important piece. And then in Christ, now we take on his image, right? So now through Christ, we go back to this, this image bearers, and we take on the image of Christ on the earth. That's our job. That's who we were created to be. It's who we are. All right. This is the problem, though. The problem is the fall. It's the next category. Remember we said creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Okay, we're just going to talk about two this morning and briefly. But the fall, this is where original sin came in. So Genesis 3, if you, and we're not going to go there now for the sake of time, but Genesis 3 uh, gives us the story of, of Adam and Eve giving into temptation with the serpent and taking a bite of the fruit as God had told them not to. And, you know, the serpent is deceiving them. Did God really say Right? Did God really say that, you know, the, the devil is challenging God's truth? He's still doing that. 
He's doing that today. He's doing that with the topics we're talking about now and with other topics. He's saying, did God really say? Is that really true? And so that's been his uh, main strategy from the beginning. But now as it relates to our identity, this is a problem. Because we were created to be image bearers. We were created to reflect the image of God on the earth. And we were given dominion over the earth to do so. And then with, with sin, now sin has come in. We now have a sin nature, which is distorting all of that to the world around us. And we see in Romans 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came in through one man, through Adam, he's talking about there, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And that really lines up, you know, with Romans 3. Now we're going back in Romans. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's a, a critical piece for us in understanding this question of identity. Right? So who are we? We are image bearers. As believers, that is who God created us to be. Actually, even as unbelievers, this was the creator's design for us. You were created to be an image bearer of the God of all the universe, which is an incredible, it's an incredible call. That's, it's what, you know, makes us distinct out of all other animals and creations. I mean, everything else in creation has God's DNA or his fingerprint is on there and you can see it and there's similarities but out of everything out of all the animals out of all of that only one human beings were created to reflect the very glory of God his image on the earth and that's what makes us unique so now that we've kind of tackled you know identity and and gone there like I said only at a foundational level because we're not talking about the other things like I am holy, I am blameless, I am justified. There's lots of other I am statements that are valuable and good as you move forward. But remember, it starts with image bearer. And then the problem though is sin. So now understanding that we're made to be image bearers. So I was made to reflect the image of God on the earth. So what is sin then? Well, we've talked about this before. Sin is missing the mark. That's actually one of the definitions. Obviously, the most common definitions we use is rebellion against God. It's disobedience. It's doing something bad. Well, yeah, all of that's included in there. But why? What makes it bad? It is, it's, you know, and that's why I like the, the definition of missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark as we are supposed to reflect the glory of God on the earth. Anytime I fail to do that, that is what the Bible calls sin. That's what sin is. And that's important for us to understand as we go forward. I'm going to come back to this because I'm laying the foundation now. And at the end of the message, we're going to come back to that and see why is that important as we move forward and try to understand sexuality and where it fits and how it fits with the church and God's plan for us. All right. Now let's move on to the next topic. And that's going to be biblical sexuality and how that fits with our identity. Now, I should say, you know, look, at, um, I mean, technically, I guess we could have more time today because of worship, but I won't keep you here forever. And this is, a, this is a topic that's only this big, and there are many, 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 many good books written on it, and there's lots that the Bible has to say. Um, and obviously, I, I, want, I intend to come back to this. So we're, I'm doing one message today, and then we will come back to this, you know, later on in the year. Absolutely, yes, uh, because there's more that needs to be said on marriage and singleness and, uh, and other topics as well, and how we find freedom and all that stuff. But today I'm just laying a, a, a foundation. It's a, it's a framework. So we have the right understanding as we move forward in the culture. All right. Sexuality has become a key identity marker in the past 150 years. Uh, so without going through, you know, the entire uh, history, 
uh, because I felt like that wasn't the, the best place to focus the, the energy today, but I think 1868 was the first time the, the phrase homosexual and heterosexual were used, and Sigmund Freud, he's the one who kind of made them more popular in the early 1900s. So he began to really identify people based on sexual desire. So that's very important for us as we understand, you know, um, sexuality, because right now in our current culture, we feel like sexuality is a huge way that we identify, right? People say they're heterosexual or they're bisexual or they're homosexual, and it's, it's part of who they are. Well, prior, you know, go back 100 years or 100 plus years, and our attractions and desires, our sexuality, were something that we did. It wasn't something that defined who we are. And that's a, that's a big thing. So in human history, this is relatively new still uh, for us. And, we're, and that's why we're probably struggling with navigating and finding our way there um, and finding our way forward. So now, are labels bad? No, labels aren't bad. I actually find labels very hel uh, helpful in lots of things. Uh, you think about things like personality tests. I don't know if you guys do that, but, you know, like the DISC personality uh, profiling tests or, or Myers-Briggs and you get a label. Well, labels can be helpful in that sense um, because they help you understand, oh, this is kind of the strengths and weaknesses of that person. This is kind of, uh, you know, part of who you are, right? But, but it's not helpful if it's going to become the main thing of who you are. And that's where, that's where it gets a little bit tricky for us, especially as we, as we are believers. And last week we talked about this. We talked about Christian first, and I'm going to end with that because I think that's an important thing for us to understand. But the question is, you know, are these labels and is identifying ourselves with our sexuality and what does the Bible actually have to say about this? So, before I go further on this topic, because I recognize, again, there has been so much attention put here by the culture and so much hurt that has happened inside and outside of the church. Um, as soon as we start talking about, uh, you know, LGBTQ issues, uh, there has been many people that have been hurt by the church. And for that, is, for that I'm very sorry. That's awful. I, I feel like in many ways, you know, as you look at church history, as we've tackled this issue, I, I think we have done a lot of things wrong and we need to improve on things. But, so before I go any further, I just want to say, I really liked a quote I read in Focus on the Family. And they were writing on the biblical perspective on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And what they wrote is this, there is no place for hatred, hurtful comments, or other forms of rejection towards those who experience same-sex attraction or identify themselves as gay, lesbian, or bisexual. I 100% agree with that. The church needs to fully embrace that and 100% agree with that. And that would be true of all people. Hurtful comments, hatred, um, all, all forms of rejection, those should never be, in any issue, the things that define what the church is known for. You know, as I prepared for today's message, um, I was just, you know, you, you try to get in because we all have our own experience. We do. And none of you will know what it's like to be me, and I won't know what it's like to be you because I have never walked in your shoes. So we're all trying our best to, to understand people, or we should be trying our best to understand people. But, you know, I, I sat there and looked at, you know, some of the different things that have happened within uh, the LGBT community, people that have shared with me, even personally, some of the treatment that, that they have felt. And so I, I spent some time this week as I was praying for this message and praying for uh, how we were going to tackle this within Southland. Um, but actually just getting into the mind like, and just trying to imagine what it would be like being raised as a child with same-sex attraction. 
So, you know, I, I want you to take a moment and just try to really, really imagine. So go on a bit of a journey with me as we think about just being a young kid. Do you remember the innocence of youth? Do you remember that? I do. I remember uh, living in Woodstock, Ontario. I remember laying in the grass outside. I remember my sister Kim, me and her were like two peas in a pod. We were like best friends uh, growing up and we were just little kids, both with like whitey, blondy hair. And we did everything together. I remember we had a little fruit tree weird thing that dad cut down that I was very upset about. Anyways, there was innocence. I remember being there. Life was good. Life was fun. Right? I mean, you had no idea about, about you know, the evils of the world or, or you know, the, the problems we had were maybe not getting the food you wanted for, for supper or not getting the present you wanted for Christmas. I mean, that was about the extent of it. We had a really good childhood. But so you imagine being that child. You're growing up and everything's normal. Everything's good. And uh, you might even be being raised in a, in a Christian home. And now you start hitting that middle school age. And this is where, you know, so, so as be, being a boy, you know, you're this young boy and you hit middle school and now your friends start talking about, oh, I like this girl or oh, I like that girl or she's pretty. And, and you're just kind of waiting, you know, you don't feel those feelings and that's not a big deal because it kind of all transitions, you know, in a period there. And, and you know, you're, you're waiting for those feelings to kind of come to you. And as you're waiting, you actually find yourself having a strong, you know, these strong urges or feelings towards one of your friends. And he's another, he's another guy. And so you're very confused because your experience, remember, we're all trying to figure out who we are and, and how, that, you know, how we fit into the world around us. And we often do that um, by looking at, at people around us. So we're looking at what's normal and how do I fit within that. And so you imagine being that, that young boy and you're trying to figure out, I mean, it doesn't seem like anyone's sharing your narrative or your feelings uh, and it's not reciprocal. So, you know, you start wondering, you know, is something wrong with you? Is something intrinsically wrong with me? Like, is there something broken in me? Why, why, am, why am I not feeling these feelings? And as you go forward, then maybe even your friends joke about uh, other kids who are gay or they joke about the topic and you realize that there's a lot of hostility towards it and you start wondering if that, if that is you. If you're, if you're that kid, if you are maybe gay on the inside and you're not sure because you're not sure where your attractions are leading you and, and then you, know, you think maybe mom and dad are a good place to go and you watch maybe you're watching a TV show with them and you know, there's all sorts of things that happen on TV shows and mom and dad might not say anything but all of a sudden there's something related to the LGBTQ and, and maybe it's in a movie or a show and right away his mom and dad are highly against that. And by the way, I'm not trying, this is not to shame anyone. I'm trying to say as we tackle going forward and what the Bible has to say, we need to stand for truth and love. I'm just saying that's impossible to do until we try to, like, try to get the heart of someone who's there. So now you're, you're, uh, you're this young kid and you're thinking, maybe I'll talk to mom and dad. And they seem to have a really strong sense. Of, it's almost as if they haven't outright said it and you're afraid to ask. But you almost get the feeling that if you were gay, that would be the worst thing possible for them. So you feel isolated and alone. Your family, your community, how do I fit into this world? So maybe you think to come to a church or maybe if I talk to a pastor. So you're listening at church. Will we talk about it? And, and, and you notice, well, there's not a lot said about it. But when we talk about it, you know, maybe in the church, maybe it was a church that, that says, yes, it's sin. Right? We believe in biblical definition of marriage, which is between one man and one woman. Uh, and homosexuality is sin. But never is there, you know, an open door uh, to come and talk and to work this through and to sort it out without judgment. So you feel even further isolated. So this is the experience. Now, I'm, I'm just making up one story, but I've heard these stories. 
in meetings that I've had uh, one-on-one, I've heard these stories and others like it. And this is the experience of lots of people. So we need to understand as the church, as we're exploring identity and sexuality and how that fits within the church, we need to actually approach this, not just with standing on what is true. We should stand for what is true. Yes, we should. But I think sometimes we have stood so strongly for what is true, we have forgot to think of that eight-year-old boy that, doesn't, that his whole world is in chaos or that girl. And so that's what I'm getting at here as we're starting this conversation is we need to take the time to seek to understand people, to love people, to, to see where they're coming from and to understand the amount of pain and confusion uh, that is surrounding these kind of issues. So I want our church to be a part of a solution. I believe that is the call of all Christ followers. I hate the idea, the, the, the thought that, you know, you have the LGBT community and then you have the church and that the two can't mingle. I mean, whoa, you can't, you can't mingle those two. And I'm thinking, why? What, didn't Jesus say when they were saying, oh, he eats and drinks with sinners? And Jesus' response was what? You're right. I shouldn't be with people that aren't perfect. No, he said, the doctor doesn't come to help. You know, the doctor comes to heal the sick, not those who think think they're good enough already. And so if we're going to be Christ followers, we need to be following in those same footsteps. We need, to be, we need to be working to break divides. And maybe you don't have an opportunity with something you can do, but then we need to be praying and seeking it out in prayer uh, and supporting that kind of move. So what does the Bible have to say? Now, putting that aside, because I wanted to lay a bit of a framework so that we're at least approaching this without judgment and with an open heart saying, Lord, we want to be part of loving people. We want to be part of helping those that need help. That's what the church is called to do, to be a safe place for people. So, what does the Bible have to say about sex and sexuality? Um, when, you, uh, when you look at this, I, I read, I mean, I've been reading on this for some time, a bunch of books. I'll actually give you guys uh, later on, uh, uh, not today, today I'll recommend one book. But, uh, but I would love, we'll make more books available because I think it's important. Some of you are going through this or you have questions and then I'll give you resources that you can look at later on. But, some are saying the Bible doesn't have much to say about it, that we can redefine marriage. Uh, we can redefine marriage or, you know, with, with homosexuality, for instance, there's only six verses and because there's only six, then, then, then maybe they're no longer relevant. And so I think it's important again to go back to what does the Bible say and then to take our truth from here. Let the Bible define itself instead of trying to change our hermeneutic. So the first thing we're going to look at is Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here we have the, the this is really the framework. There's not a lot said about what, the, what biblical sexuality is other than a couple of verses. Why? Because the Bible says this is what it's for. This is the boundary lines. This is the confines. And then labels everything else outside of that as sinful. And that includes heterosexual sin as well. I mean, in fact, most of the examples in the Bible of sexual immorality are not actually uh, related to issues of homosexuality, but actually issues of heterosexuality. That's most of the examples of immorality we find in Scripture. But some, will, some have charged, well, Jesus didn't reaffirm that, right? Jesus didn't talk about it, so it must not be relevant. Now, he might not have directly talked about homosexual acts uh, or or uh, in that sense, but he did talk about sexual immorality. And if we look at Matthew 19, he reaffirmed what Genesis had already said. He reaffirmed the goodness of God's plan and how nothing has changed. And that's, a, that's an important thing for us, again, as we're trying to wrestle through this because our identity is being an image bearer. 
And Jesus, again here, now as we accept Christ, we are actually working to, uh, towards becoming like Christ. And what Jesus is saying is he's pointing us back to Genesis again, back to the beginning, and he's saying, image bearer, and this is my plan for sexuality, one man, one woman in the confines of marriage. And that's what we see here in the Matthew 19, 4 to 5. He's reaffirming it. So the Bible does place uh, the, the boundary lines for sex within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. Any sexual behavior outside of this definition is sinful. Remember, you're saying sinful. Oh, that means if I have any issues outside of there or if I have a struggle, that means then, then God doesn't love me? That I have no value? Heavens no. That is not at all the biblical message. What it means is anything outside of that is sin. It means it misses the mark of reflecting the glory of God. And I want to talk, I don't have time for it today because just of time. When we come back to this, I actually, I want to expand on that picture because when you have a better understanding of what marriage is supposed to reflect, it'll help put into context why the boundary lines were put where they are. But we don't have time to get into that today, uh, but we will come back to it. So back to that idea though of, well, if you're saying it's sinful and I have this attraction, that must mean that God hates me, the church hates me, I have no place in the world. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely not. Romans 3 says, all have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious standard. I would never assume or, or, or point a finger at anybody and say that you're somehow worse off than me. I, I spent a decade in, in drug addiction and sex addiction, and I know that doesn't mean I understand where you're coming from. I get that. I, I totally get that. But if anyone doesn't deserve, here, deserve to be here, it's me. And I get that. And Paul, the Apostle Paul understood that same thing after the atrocities he did to the church. And yet he also understood the grace of God. That while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Your sin, yes, all have sinned. And yes, the wages of sin is death. Yes, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. There's hope. So, back to this. What do we believe at Southland? This is very important. What we believe at Southland regarding humans and identity. We believe that without exception. Every human being is valuable person created by God in his image and thus possesses inherent dignity. And that we are called to love and treat every person with genuine respect. This does not change based on any desire, attraction, or behavior. Any. It shouldn't. And if it does... Christians, then we need to repent. If, if other people struggling in different areas than us causes us to no longer see them with inherent dignity, to no longer love them and treat them with respect, that's our issue, not theirs. This is what we believe. Second, sexuality and marriage. This is what we believe in line with historical Christianity and also what the Bible teaches. We believe in the biblical definition of marriage as the covenantal union between one man and one woman. That covenantal union is important because again, and I'll get back to this in a different message, it is critical for understanding why the boundary lines are where they are. But this is what we believe, that it's between one man and one woman, and any sex outside of this definition is sinful, meaning any sex outside of that definition misses the mark of accurately reflecting the glory of God on the earth. So, how do we move forward with this? You know, in the 12 minutes or so that we have left, um, we're going to run through a, a few things here. So how do we move forward and become a church, you know, that, that welcomes all people as we journey towards Christ? And that's really what I want. So we're going to look at church, sexuality, and the gospel. And the, the first thing is we're going to reframe the goal. 
you know, I've talked to believers and they talk about, you know, the, the goal is to be, you know, and I've heard this before, even when people are coming in with same-sex attraction, the goal is to somehow make them uh, have straight attractions or heterosexual attractions. That is not the goal. Nowhere in the Bible does it say the goal is to be heterosexual. In fact, like I said, most of the sexual immorality that we find outlined in here that God condemns is heterosexual in nature. The goal is not heterosexual. The goal is holy sexuality. And I took that from Christopher Yuan. And I'll, I do have one book here that I'll recommend. I don't know if you can see it. Maybe you can't because it's too zoomed out. But, uh, oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks, guys. <laughs> Holy Sexuality in the Gospel by Christopher Yuan. I would highly recommend, if this is an area that is close to your heart, that you read this. Uh, he's coming out of the lifestyle and he has lots of grace and speaks with truth. Uh, and he believes in the authority of God's word. And I love that. So uh, I, I like borrowing from guys like him who actually have more to say here in this area because he understands the internal struggle that goes on in a way that I can't. But that doesn't mean that as believers we shouldn't be speaking to issues that are relevant to the culture. We need to be able to stand on truth. But holy sexuality is the goal. So I remember talking to a guy, and I'll just give you an example. This is years ago, one of my friends who I was, uh, we were praying together and actually holding each other accountable in the area of sexual purity. And he struggled more on, uh, on the same-sex side. And I remember him asking me a question. So is the goal like that I don't lust after men, but I lust after women? And as soon as he said it, we both laughed because we realize the foolishness of that. No, the goal isn't to go from one sinful desire to another sinful desire. The goal is actually to put our focus and our lives centered on Christ. That's the goal. It's a higher mark. So holy sexuality, and I took that phrase uh, from Juan. So um, just looking at the time. Man, we need an hour and a half today. That's okay. I'll go through and we'll just come back and whatever we can't finish today, we'll just come back and finish it on, on another week. All right. So um, many churches have perpetuated this idea that somehow, you know, same-sex attraction is worse than any other sexual sin. You know, Jesus himself hit this really strongly in Matthew, in Matthew 5, right? Because the Pharisees were doing the same thing. They were kind of, you know, oh, the, the adulterer was so terrible. And Jesus says, I actually see your heart. To even look at a woman with lust in your heart is the same thing. He said it's the same thing as committing adultery. Sin is sin. But we have to be careful within the church as we reframe this debate. We're not trying to pray away the gay. That, that phrase has no place in Christian circles. Anywhere. Has no place in Christian circles. We're trying to lead people where? To Jesus. That's what we're trying to do. All of us. We're all on the same journey of moving towards Jesus together. And we're pursuing Jesus in holiness. So we're not trying to change attractions. We're trying to pursue Jesus and remove everything that stands within the way. So, um, Christopher Juan writes on, on how he defines holy sexuality and holy sexuality in the gospel. He says these are the two goals, how holy sexuality looks like in the life of a believer. First one is chastity and singleness. And these two ones, I want to preach a whole message on, just, on, on this one too, because I think it's brilliant. He has such good points on here on reframing what biblical sexuality should look like. He says in singleness, the goal is chastity. Purity and holiness. Purity and holiness. That's the goal. Okay? And in marriage, the goal is faithfulness. And it's more than just maintaining, you know, chastity or avoiding illicit sex. Here he says faithfulness in marriage is about, about covenantal commitment. It's, it conveys covenantal commitment. And when we look at it like this, and this is what I love about it, because as soon as you realize the goal isn't to go from one sexual attraction to another sexual attraction, the goal is to go towards holy sexuality, to put Jesus first in everything. 
As soon as you do that reframing, you begin to actually realize how same as me we all are. Because all of us fall short of this standard. And this is the biblical standard. All of us fall short of this standard. You know, we look at someone who might struggle with feeling like, uh, you know, I have gay, gay attractions and that's, I wish I was straight. You know what? Everybody's sexuality is broken. Mine is broken. Yours is broken. The person besides you, their sexuality is broken. We are broken human beings. We all need a savior. I'm not trying to minimize anyone's pain either, okay? But that's the first thing. Reframe the goal. It's not gay to straight. It's holy sexuality. And all of us fall short of that. We all are on the journey of working towards holy sexuality. All right, point number two. Deal with the log in your own eye before the speck in your brother's eye. Deal with the log in your own eye before the speck in your brother's eye. Jesus had lots to say about this. He didn't like the idea of someone feeling self-righteous about themselves pointing out the sin in somebody else because it's different than their own. He was very, very quick to point the finger back at the people who felt smug about their own lives and to say, I see your heart. You're no different. And he doesn't do it to condemn us either. He does it to invite us into finding freedom from shame and guilt and sin in him, in Christ. But there is only one way, in him, in Christ. So personal repentance, this is something that's very, very important. Romans 3.23, all sin, all fall short of God's glorious standard. One second. I referenced this verse already, but I'm going to put it up there now. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Good. Good. Don't commit adultery. Right? Covenantal faithfulness in marriage. Absolutely yes. But he says, look at this. Everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on to describe the seriousness of that sin in, in the verses after, talking about gouging an eye or cutting off a hand, would actually be better than staying with these kinds of sins, even these hidden sins in your life. And so he, makes, he gives a strong case on that. So sin is sin, and this is where Christians have to, we have to realize uh, that we have often, not, not every person, and not even with bad intentions, but we become part of the problem when we start looking at other people's sin as worse than our own. And it's human nature to do this, by the way, because you're comfortable with your own struggles. You're comfortable with them. You understand them. You feel them, right? We always talk about we judge others by their what? Actions and ourselves by our intentions. But we really need to flip that around within the church and become places of safety for others to, to, to journey towards Christ together with. And so I wanted to, uh, we're going to go through a passage in Romans because it's really, really good. This is not a new problem that we're having where, you know, uh, where people are judgmental towards others and kind of smug towards themselves. Paul addressed this multiple times in the scriptures as did Jesus. This is a human problem. This has always been a problem. And so we need to recognize that and work on counteracting this within our church so that we become a place for all people to come and find Jesus and chase after him together. So, Romans. Ah. <sighs> I'm gonna, I'll, I'll read this and I'll pause a few times just to, just to uh, explain what's going on. So here Paul is talking to um, the Jews in Rome, right? So in, in, uh, in Romans, right? So therefore, this is what he's saying. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
committing, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So he's talking to the Jews. So I, I want you to kind of get the context of what's happening here. He's talking to the Jews, and right about this point when he's preaching, they would have all been like this. Amen. Right? God condemns us. You know, we worship because the Jews felt like they were the ones that knew the, the creator. Right? And it was only the Gentiles that worshipped the creature. Right? Because they knew the one true God. So, so the two sins that Paul's going to really highlight, and he highlights what? Homosexual acts. And by the way, I need to clarify something with, uh, when we talk about uh, homosexuality. Uh, thoughts and desires and temptations aren't sin in and of themselves. So to have an attraction inside of you that you can't control isn't sinful. The Bible condemns sinful actions. That's very, very important. And we could have a whole message on that in and of itself. But that's very important that we remember it. Just having an attraction one way or the other, being attracted to things, is not sinful in and of itself. We're all human beings and we have distorted attractions and desires. All of us. And we all have to work on aligning those up with the image of God. That's, that's true for everyone. All right, back to this though. So Paul, what, what the Jews believed at the time was uh, things like, uh, homosexual acts and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. These were things that only Gentiles did. So Paul's starting by kind of, he's baiting them. That's what he's doing. He's saying, this is, and they're all going to receive the, the penalty due them for their error. And so he's talking about the two big things. And the Jews would have been saying, amen, amen, right? Feeling good about themselves. Like, we're not like that. We're not like that. So now let's go forward. And since... They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to, the, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Oh my goodness, pause right here, right? So what is he saying here? He's, he's started by saying, look, you guys are condemning the, the Gentiles for these sins. And they're saying, yeah, well, yeah, they're bad sins. We would never do that. And he says, right, yeah, they, they, there's a punishment. The wages of sin is death. Amen to that. And then he goes on to expand the list that would have made everyone listening uncomfortable because they would have all seen their own hearts and actions reflected in that list that continues on. Because one sin isn't worse than the other. The wages of all sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that's very important for us to, to understand. And then he goes on, you know, therefore you have no excuse, O man. You who judge, everyone who judges, listen to this. Everyone who judges, you have no excuse for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Or do you suppose, O oh man, that those who judge, those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the, ju the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? Do we, the judge, practice the very same thing? Right? You say, well, I don't do that. I don't struggle with that sin. Like Paul just said, he, just, he broadened it. Do you yourself sin? Because if you have failed, James says, if you have failed in one part of it, then you're accountable to all of it. That's what we have to understand as Christians. All right, number three. Sorry, I got my PowerPoints a little mixed up there. Normally I give them to them earlier and they fix them for me, but you know. This time it's just on me. <laughs> Number three. So we have the reframe the goal. Yep. Personal repentance. Right? To kind of deal with the log in your own eye before the speck in your brother's eye. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. 
And anytime you feel like you're good enough and the problem is with the other person, go back to that because you're slipping into pride. Then, love first, listen more, talk less, never be ashamed of the gospel. Never be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew, Jew first and then also to the Greek. Don't be ashamed. But that said, where we've gotten it wrong is we've gotten half the equation right. So we've preached on truth. Okay, let's, let's talk about truth. Let's get that right. But truth without love can often cause more harm than good. And we need to get better at the love part. Love first, listen more, talk less. Okay, we need to learn how to empathize with people. We need to learn how to listen. You say, well, you know what? Well, I mean, I kind of see as everyone is the same. I, I totally get that. Totally get that. But when someone's struggling with pain or they have a struggle that's different than yours, just talk less. Instead of trying to minimize it or relate it to your own struggle, ask questions. We can do that. And we can actually seek to understand people more. We can go out for coffee with people that struggle differently than us. We can love first. We can have them into our home. Uh, we, can, we can create environments where it's non-judgmental. And then, of course, we don't have, that doesn't mean we're ashamed of the gospel. We can still stand on truth. But we can seek that out together. You know, one of the things that I've heard, and I'll give you a short list on what Christians can do in this area. But I first want to address a misconception that I, I've heard a few times. And I, I've gotten this right back from in my day when I started doing, you know, Four Winds Ministry and helping people coming out of addictions and life-controlling behaviors. People would say things like, well, I can only come to you because you've done what I've done. There's this idea that human beings have that the only people that are qualified to help someone who's struggling is someone who has struggled in the exact same area as them. And I, I want to tell you this. Now, are there advantages to having struggled in the same area as someone else for helping them move forward? Sure, there is an advantage in the sense of as they're relating to me, I can often, you know, when someone talks about, you know, being stuck in a pornography addiction or being stuck in a drug addiction or being stuck in anxiety, I can relate to that because I've been there. So there's a side of me that can relate to what they're saying or I can share my experience of how I walked out of it. And you might say, but that's what we need. No, that's not what we need. It's helpful, yes. What we need is Jesus. That's the only thing we actually need. We need Jesus. We need spirit. So in the church, when, when we're going out with problems, we're all going to struggle differently. What we need to move forward is we need just spirit-filled, Jesus-loving believers, followers of Christ. That's what we need to journey together with and move, and move forward. So, now with that, the caution is uh, <laughs> to, to love first, listen more, and talk less, right? So when you haven't been through someone's journey exactly the way they have, don't assume that you understand where they're coming from. The best way to find out is ask questions, okay? So here's what you can do. All right, uh, what we can do as believers. Repent, deal with the sin in your life first. I, I know I said this already, but I'll say it again. Repent. Deal with your sin first. Remember that we're all in the same boat together. Second, pray for God's heart for people and pray for people to know Jesus. That's the goal. You know that the goal when I meet with an alcoholic is not, I've told this to people before, my goal is not for you to be free of alcohol. What? No, that's not my goal. My goal in, in, in this pastoral meeting is that you get to know Jesus more. And as you get to know him more, your life will start to line up with him more and you will find you get freedom in a lot of different areas. My goal isn't freedom. My goal is Jesus. Same is true with any type of sexual immorality. Our goal isn't to change people's feelings or change their attractions or to, to change their behavior. That's not the goal. The goal is to introduce them to Jesus and to help people on a journey of growing closer to him. That's what we all need. 
That should be all of our goal. Number three, intentionally show love. Ask questions, seek to understand. Intentionally show love. Have people into your home. Don't be afraid of someone who struggles differently than you. And that goes for any struggle. Don't be afraid. If you don't understand, ask questions. Show people that you love. Show them. Don't say things like, well, I hate the sin, but I love the sinner. I have heard from multiple people in the LGBT community that that comes across as offensive. So don't say that. Show that. Show it in how you live. Show it in how you treat people, that you love them, that you care about them. Right? Don't pretend like you're coming from a place of self-righteousness. Come at it from the place of we're all sinners in need of grace. Invite people to join you on that journey. Which brings me to number four. Study the Bible together with others to find answers for the questions. Truth in love. What does the Bible say about that? What, you know, and here's a, here's a passage. What do you think, you know, if this is true, I mean, how do you think God would want us to respond? And how can we line our lives up to be more like him? Seek help. We can do that together. And lastly, don't judge. Don't judge others. Judge yourself. Start here in your own heart. Be a safe place for those who, who, are, who are sharing their struggles with you. Remember, right, the truth. We're all on a journey towards Jesus and holiness. Okay, I got to wrap this up now. All right, back to the image of God, identity. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Last week we talked about this a bit. Because I, I just splashed coffee in my face. I don't know if you could see that, but that's, excuse me. <laughs> wow. All right, what does it mean to be a Christian? We talked about this last week with hope. You, you remember that? And if you didn't, you can go back and listen to it or, or not. That's totally fine. But what I said is, right, we're not Canadians first. We're not husbands or wives first. We're not parents first. We're not friends first, or we're not, you know, I'm not a church employee first, or whatever you are. We're not those things first. See, taking, like, becoming a Christian is actually, it's actually putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It's actually taking your life, you're exchanging one life for another. It's a rebirth. So you're, you're taking your life, and you're looking at Jesus, and you're saying, Jesus, I want you more than all of this. You're taking on Christ's name. You're becoming a Christ first person, a Christian. So people will say, but I was born this way, or this is how I feel, or why, why would God, we have all of the, these questions, and they're not bad questions, they're good questions. We don't have time to get into all of them today, but I want to talk about the overarching question that we have to actually ask ourselves. Because, you know, is it true, you know, if, you, if, if you're a same-sex attracted person, will you have to put to death the deeds of the flesh? Will you have to put to death those attractions and desires? And the answer is yes. I, I, I wouldn't tell you anything different. I don't believe that would be loving. Jesus said in Matthew, whoever doesn't pick up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And I know I might, after that statement, you might feel like, oh, that's a stab in the heart. No, please, please don't hear it that way. This is not just to someone with same-sex attractions. This was said to all people. For every person who would come after Christ Jesus and take upon the name of Christian. If you're a believer and you haven't had to put to death your flesh and you've never picked up your cross to follow Jesus, you might want to get into this book this week and start asking yourself which Jesus you're following because he was very clear on what it means to be a Christian. It's forsaking all your rights, not just the sinful things or the things you don't like. It's your dreams, it's your hopes, it's your desires, your relationships, everything, everything that makes up who you are and you're putting them down. You're being reborn as a Christian, a Christ-first 
person. So it's true, if you're struggling, you know, I want to speak to those if you're in our congregation or listening today, and you've struggled with, you know, um, L, uh, you know, you've struggled with same-sex attraction or, uh, or other things. It could be something else. But if, specifically, if you've struggled with same-sex attraction, I have never struggled there. I, I get that. I haven't. So, you know, can I, can I tell you everything that you're feeling? No, I can't. I've only ever struggled in the areas I've struggled in. And I recognize that. But one thing that I am sure of is this. I might not understand everything about everyone who's listening in your struggles and the nuances of that, but I do know this. I know the answer. I know what it is that your heart is longing for. And it's not going to be found in another man or a woman or in a thing or in a title you give yourself or anything else in this life. Money, riches, power, you won't find it anywhere. The deepest answer to the longing that you feel inside is found in Jesus Christ. It's found in the person of Christ Jesus himself. And as you consider if he is worth laying down your life for, this is for anybody listening, I would ask you to not, not allow the mistakes that the church has made or other Christians, not to allow those things, the hurts that we've committed, to hinder you from looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, is, is he worth giving up your life to follow. And I also want to speak to anyone in our, in our church that has felt, you know, in our community that has struggled with same-sex attraction and you feel like you've been isolated or targeted or if you've ever felt that way here, I, I say sorry from the deepest place of my heart. We do not want to be that type of church. I don't see you as any different than me or any different as anyone else. And you are welcome here and we love you. And I would, it would be an honor for us as a church to journey together with those of any struggle or background as we struggle and, and seek to, to put Jesus first and we pursue holiness together. Let me pray for you. And that's all for today. Lord, in this area of sexuality and identity, we recognize, Lord, that we're learning. We're learning and, and we want to just confess to you that we've gotten so much wrong historically. We realize that. We recognize that. And we, we also recognize, Lord, that when the church, because we represent your name, when we make mistakes, it hurts at a level that's, that's deeper than anything else. And so, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. And then we ask for your heart. Lord, we want to be a church that is open to all people, to everyone. Jesus, you died for all people. You love all people and you are calling them all to yourself. And Lord, we want to be a church that reflects that to the world around us. Lord, we ask though, as, as well as we ask for your heart for people, for lost people, we ask also for wisdom on how we move forward and also that we would continue being firm and standing firm on your word. We thank you for what you're going to do. And Lord, we, we ask that you would bring many people to know you more. We're asking for those in the LGBT community, for those in other areas, uh, Lord, in every area of all reaches of mankind. We're asking for your spirit to go forward and to empower the church to move forward that many more would know you, the God who saves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.